We are under attack. Behind the bright lights of the global stage, there lies a dark underworld most people know nothing about. People need to care what's happening inside of Putin's Russia because it's affecting all of us. This is Kremlin File. Hi, everybody. I'm Mo. And I'm Olga. We're going to be delving into hybrid warfare, hacking, disinformation. Facebook is now revealing how many people may have seen Russia-linked pages during and after the 2016 campaign. Content generated by the Russian troll farm known as the Internet Research Agency that was seeking to meddle in American politics through social media was served to 126 million Facebook users in the United States. It was more than Facebook posts. It was money flowing into campaigns. There was disinformation on the web, complete propaganda and lies. The release of these 20,000 emails from WikiLeaks uh, from the DNC. Of course, CNN can't verify the authenticity of those emails, but they suggest that DNC employees uh, have, have plotted in many ways to undercut and undermine Senator Sanders during the primary. Russia likely stole the emails and gave them to WikiLeaks. Hillary Clinton's campaign manager accuses the Russian government of trying to help Donald Trump's campaign. People can actually see this playing out wherever you live, in whatever country, especially in Europe and in Canada as well, and also in the United States, and we have to pay attention. Bad actors, once again, were using Facebook to spread disinformation ahead of the 2018 midterms. Facebook said it shut down 32 pages and accounts that were, quote, involved in coordinated, inauthentic behavior. The Department of Homeland Security confirmed it withheld a July intelligence report warning that Russia is actively targeting Joe Biden's candidacy. And as chaotic as it seems, everything is going according to a plan and a certain playbook. To show how long-term the plan was, you can trace back to 2008 when they started seeing the hostility towards Obama and started playing on the race factor. It's the same tactics. Before KGB thought they were successful by placing an ad in like a local paper in the 1970s. Now they get their message to billions, or in this case, uh, Senator Johnson, you know, <laughs> repeating their propaganda in a United States Senate. They just want shit show. They want our countries to like erupt into chaos because the more we're concentrating on fighting each other inside of a country and the more distractions there are, it's like almost like a house of mirrors. You're missing the bigger picture and the bigger attacks. We're really, really pleased because we're going to be speaking with Heather Conley and Jakob Yanda, who are two freedom fighters who are tracking and combating Russian hybrid warfare in Eastern Europe. And also Central Europe and all the effects that it has on United States and the rest of Europe. Hello, Heather, and hello, Jakob, and welcome to Kremlin File. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, today's conversation actually is about hybrid warfare and how it's being waged against the West. So, Heather, everyone's heard of the terminology hybrid warfare, and analysts seem to throw it around all over the place. But could you give us an explanation of what hybrid warfare actually is? We have a lot of terms for it. Hybrid warfare, you'll sometimes hear asymmetric warfare. Sometimes you'll hear sub-threshold warfare. Mm -hmm. So what that means, it's everything below the threshold of conventional warfare. So it exploits 
every possible thing. It can weaponize every possible thing to help achieve a strategic objective. So in Russia, this is actually a military doctrine. It's called new generation warfare. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing new about this type of warfare. This is centuries old. Think about the Trojan horse. You know, How do you disguise yourself to provide strategic surprise to the enemy? Yeah. But this strategy, as articulated by General Gerasimov, who is the Russian general chief of staff, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in, in U.S. equivalency, this doctrine is designed designed to not be one of brute force, but a strategy of influence to break the enemy system, that is the West, from within. Because Russia doesn't want to meet us on the conventional warfare because we have such power and strength. But the best thing you can do is erode us and weaken us from within, and then you never have to fire a shot. And that's really what it's designed to do. Heather, you wrote in the Kremlin Playbook report that you co-authored at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in 2000. And I think you also followed it up in 2019. Could you explain what economic and political capture is and then how the Kremlin does this, how they carry out this capture? And what do Putin and his kleptocrats want in the end? Well, that is a massive question. That's huge. But actually, think about Central and Eastern Europe has been Russia's laboratory for the last two decades on how they use economic warfare, disinformation warfare, which is why we want to study it. And it was actually over a decade ago in 2009 that a group of Central and Eastern European leaders, pro-pro-American leaders, wrote to then President Obama, who was just announcing the U.S.-Russia reset, and said, wait a minute, you guys be careful. We believe Russia is using, and these were their words, economic warfare to change the transatlantic orientation of their countries. And I I, I thought, well, is that true? Could you use economics to change the transatlantic and democratic orientation of a country? So that was a study question. At the very end of the day, we saw when there is over 12% of Russian GDP flowing within a country, then things start to really begin to shift and there's huge political influence. And how that works We call it the unvirtuous circle. So this is Russia through strategic sectors, energy, finance, banking sector, media, transportation, infrastructure. They penetrate economically. And then that economic starts buying political influence, either locally or nationally. And then what they do is they have to protect that big economic project. They don't want anybody else to try to get in on it. So they they increase the political influence, which enlarges the economic influence until you get to a point of state capture, meaning the country, the leadership, they can't get out from under it. And Russia controls the banks, the energy into it, the media outlets and controlling message. They can't do things that work against Russian interests. So we saw how that worked and it's tailored per country. Sometimes it comes in through political influence. You have political elite that are very close to Russia's inner circle and then that grows the economics. Sometimes it just comes through the economics and then it grows the politics and then you get into that in virtuous circle that it's state capture. You can't move. The Kremlin playbook too came about because we kept seeing the same names of the same countries 
and the same companies and the Russian inner circle. And we're like, wait a minute, why do we keep seeing these names? And so we did the second study, which we called the enablers. We found that there were countries and enabling forces that were saying, yeah, let's do this. Our tax attorneys, our corporate service providers, our tax havens, they were benefiting economically from Russian malign influence. Because we noted in Bulgaria, which at the time of our study had over 22% of its GDP was Russian economic footprint. But when you look at foreign direct investment in Bulgaria, the number one foreign direct investor is the Netherlands, which were like, oh, great, a NATO member. We're not concerned about that. It's not Dutch. It's because the main Russian energy companies incorporate in the Netherlands, which is very easy and is very, very lucrative tax implications for that. And it, it helps enrich certain elements of, of in the Netherlands. And so we found these enabling forces and even the Czech Republic was becoming both a recipient of that malign economic influence, but it was also helping to enable some of it. So we really saw that its own hybrid model. So the economics, they penetrate, but there's usually inside the country. There's political forces, individuals, political parties, companies that welcome it. So we have to take responsibility for helping the spread of malign influence. And that's what we have to stop. Heather is completely right. We basically see a lot of elite capture projects done by Russia. Those are projects which look like regular business or normal commercial, commercial projects, but which at the end have geopolitical or foreign policy reasons for the Russian state. Quite often they are in energy sector. So that's, for example, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline from Russia to Germany, because the main problem is not only the amount of gas which, for example, Germany would be getting from Russia. The problem is that those projects are pretty large. How Russia does them with local partners is, is almost completely non-transparent, which basically means that once you start this vicious circle of getting into these elite capture projects, so to give you an example, something what we have fought over here in Prague for the last two years was a Russian attempt to actually build a nuclear power plant in the Czech Republic. So very practically how it works, Russia already has its proxies, like political assets, individual political leaders. In my country is the president and a couple of people in the parliament as well. So what the Russian government tried to do is to use him, the Czech president Miloš Zeman, to actually force the Czech government, which decides over policies, how to actually build a nuclear power plant with help or build effectively by Rosatom, a Russian state-owned energy company. So there were like individual lobbying efforts. But what I think is the most important part is that usually Russia finds a local proxy, local partner, who is somebody very close to Russian strategic interest and willing to serve Russia at the end. That's, that's the core of the job. And those people benefit not only ideologically, but quite often financially. So currently, we have the chief advisor to the Czech president is being paid by Russia for the last six years. He does it in a formal legal way, so there is no way how to arrest him for this. But this is basically how you, how you capture individuals and institutions if they are weak, like the Czech presidency is in this case. So the president actually pushes the government to do it. And if there was no pushback from the Czech national security institutions, what could have happened would be official start of this project. So building a nuclear power plant, it takes 20 to 30 years. So if you start this process over individual years, you will find what we call basically business elite capture as well, which means that Russia would have a legitimate way how to pay off lobbying companies very legally, and which would be lobbying on behalf of Russian geopolitical interests. 
And at the same time, this would be very, very hostile to the Czech foreign policy as well. And then if the Czech government would not obey what Russia wants, so for example, we would not support Russia over Ukraine, Russia would possibly delay the project and say, maybe you should do more for us and then we will continue in this commercial project. And this is the very same same way how Russia organized its activities over Nord Stream 2 in Germany. So those projects are practical in a way that you could hire a lot of former po- local politicians who have political influence in national political environments in Czech Republic, Germany or in Hungary, for example. You know, we hear a lot about corruption. We see officials taking bribes. We see Russian money flowing into lobbyists, accountants, lawyers, dark money flowing into campaigns, political campaigns. Why does the average citizen need to care? How does it affect them? In some ways, this is two very different systems competing against one another. So the pillars of democracy are transparency and accountability. Our institutions must be transparent to the governed, to the people, and leaders must be held accountable for decisions. That's why investigative journalism is so important. That's why legislative oversight is so important. Authoritarian uh, or kleptocratic systems, they are the exact opposite. They never want transparency into their decisions, and they certainly don't want to be held accountable for those decisions. So this is why it is really important that democracies become healthy. We're a work in progress every day. We fail every day, but we get back up in the morning and we fight anew. And that is what makes us different. What the, the Russian model of governance, I assure you, is very attractive. It's becoming more and more attractive to leaders in Central Europe. The corruption of using state assets to further their own personal interests, that's very attractive, that illiberal model. Mm. Democracies have to fight against that. That's why that's why the stakes on this are so high. And it's not just that Russia uses these tools, but guess what? China uses the same opacity, Mm -hmm. the lack of transparency, environmental degradation, because they're trying to impose in some ways their model. So this is why it's so important. When foreign interference happens, it means that you are not only dealing with a small gang of, of criminals in your politics, Right. But you are dealing with a national state. And if you are dealing with a Russian state, it means that there are effectively thousands of individuals in Russian intelligence agencies and other state institutions who are targeting you, be it an American political systems, individual politicians, campaigns or countries in, in this region, Central Europe. So this is the difference. So national states like Russia or China have a lot of ca- capacities, a lot of people working against you. So you do not want to allow them into your democracy, your political system. Basically, you want to be sovereign nations. So it's really about number of people who are fighting over each other. It's about how many people stand against each other. So that's why that's why alliances matter. That's why it's good that we are in NATO in this region as well. Yes, agree. We just saw Biden greenlighting Nord Stream 2 with Merkel and issuing reassurances that Russia will not use it or they will not allow Russia to use as a political weapon. A series of gas pipelines running between Russia and Germany is at the center of an international dispute. Nord Stream 2 gas pipelines run beneath the Baltic Sea. The new pipelines, which are due to begin operating in early 2021, can carry 55 billion cubic meters of gas per year, potentially doubling the capacity of gas which could be pumped directly to Germany from Russia. Much of the opposition stems from the US. We continue to view it as a Kremlin geopolitical project 
whose goal is to expand Russia's influence over Europe's energy resources. Several Central and Eastern European countries are also concerned about growing dependence on Russian energy. Meanwhile, on June 4th, Putin himself made a threat to Ukraine and said, you know, if Ukraine doesn't behave themselves, then Russia has the right to, you know, cut off the gas. Do you think Russia will go ahead and use it as a political weapon? And will Germany actually stand up And what can be done to counter it? I would say that nobody east of Berlin believes that this deal will stand. And I don't say it lightly, honestly, because I'm one of the, the most vocal critics of over over the Nord Stream 2 project. So I think it is a, it is a real strategic mistake which will haunt us for at least a generation in this region. But then there's the strategic policy, things which are very practical. And that's what people are really afraid of, because Russia does not believe or obey any words. Russia only understands action or direct activity, no words. Basically, any deal which would be signed between Germany and Germany United States, Russia will not obey it. Uh, there's no reason for it to do yeah. it. Russia basically wants Ukraine to become a puppet state again. They are working on that. They are invading uh, Ukraine almost every day. There are Ukrainian soldiers killed on Ukrainian soil by the Russian army. So this is ongoing. It's not. It's not going away. The United States and Germany have struck a deal to resolve their dispute over the Nord Stream 2 project. In a joint statement, Washington agreed to suspend all sanctions and tolerate the new pipeline. Germany in turn is committed to impose sanctions on Russia if Moscow uses the pipeline as a political weapon. I expected that the Biden administration would lift the sanctions on Nord Stream 2 because uh, first it was close to construction. But the core of the decision, I think, is that uh, after the Trump administration, the thinking among the democratic leadership in the US was that US relationship with Germany is so uh, hurt, so damaged, that if the sanctions would go on, this relationship could be really broken for a long time. But the problem of the of the decision, I think, is not really just the decision of lifting the sanctions. That's what I think almost everybody expected. The problem is that what the Biden administration should have done, they should have spent a couple of more months before this happens. They should have toured, go went across capitals of Central and Eastern Europe, presented people, meaning governments uh, and other people here, with a very practical plan how the U.S. would stand up for them, and then make the decision or the announcement and say we are doing this on Nord Stream 2 because then this region would feel okay US is still with us they are going with Nord Stream 2 but there are things they'll do with us in the future this is not Obama again but this did not happen I understand that for the Biden team the German decision on Nord Stream 2 was the main most important one in Europe and Central Eastern Europe feels this they went ahead only with this Nord Stream 2 decision and basically Central Eastern Europe feels that I mean, I wouldn't like to say betrayed, but many people in Kiev or Warsaw would tell us would say betrayed. The headline in Kiev Post was betrayal. And I mean, I deal with Ukraine a lot and they feel their national security is in grave danger now. And on top of it, they feel betrayed because at the same time this deal was announced, no specific reassurances were given. Yeah, There's no plan if Russia rolls, you know, military into Ukraine tomorrow what will happen? There is no plan to counter it. The problem is that the yeah. war, the Russian war in Ukraine is ongoing. Yeah, there are more troops right now on Ukraine's border than there were during invasion. And I would say the narrative German government has been saying is that, OK, we will use this pipeline, this, this Nord Stream 2 pipeline, 
against Russia as a leverage to stop something. And my question I have been asking across Berlin in recent years was, okay, when are you going to start? Was there something specific you have actually asked Russia to do because you are doing this pipeline with them so they stop something? The answer never came. And I'm afraid it will never come because Germany will never do it and Russia will only use the Nord Stream 2 against Germany and us and all of us in Central Eastern Europe. Heather, what are your thoughts on Nord Stream? <laughs> you know, again, the, what the Biden administration was attempting to do, uh, I think it failed. It was trying to reset the U.S.-German relationship and signal the primacy of that relationship and to stabilize it. And I think they just viewed that this this was a done deal. So they accepted defeat and tried to repair the bilateral relationship. I think domestically, it would have been important for the, the White House to continue to fight this. I accept it may have not stopped the thing from being built, but you fight the fights that need to be fought. The policy towards Russia and Ukraine could not be any worse. We emboldened Russia. We weakened Ukraine and Central Europe. That works completely against U.S. strategic interests. So while I recognize what they were trying to do, and I acknowledge that, the implications of that policy decision will defeat them at home and I think will not achieve anything other than provoke Russia to do even more pressure on Ukraine. And that's the worst possible world. So I hope it's a lesson learned and we don't repeat those mistakes again. Why did they rush it? The pipeline was close to being finished, so I think that was part of the rush. Second, there was a huge pressure from the current German government to the Biden team, saying we need to do it now, and if you don't do it with us, if you don't lift the sanctions, it would actually diminish many of our relationship between Germany and uh, the US, uh, be it the Iran portfolio, for example, which, which the Biden team thinks about, the China policy as well, the tariffs uh, as well, discussion as well. Well, our problem is that Germany actually took, took Europe and took transatlantic relationship hostage. And they basically said, look, it's all about this Nord Stream 2 thing. You need to leave the sanctions. Otherwise, we are, we are being uh, a spoiled child and we are doing, going to do nothing with you like the US. It only shows you the level of elite capture among German political establishment, which is amazingly bad for all of us. And uh, I have to say that here in Central Eastern Europe, and it's not only Poland or the Baltic states, it's all the Czech Republic, Romania, Slovakia, there are not many people who believe Germany has uh, trust of all of us on national security issues. That's a real problem for the whole region because Germany is a main driver of the EU. It always will be given its economic power. But we have seen Germany doing very... I would say, stupid decisions on China and Russia, strategic decisions, not only talk, real decisions. And uh, that's something what splits this region apart, outside of Viktor Orban being a puppet of Russia and China in Hungary. Then effectively, if you look to Central Eastern Europe, outside of Hungary, most of this region is very much scared of what, what the German government thinks and does. And now effectively Biden teaming up with them, which I hope will change. I expect there'll be some kind of reassurance package coming from the White House to this region. At least that's good. But honestly, this is not about high-level visits and handshakes uh, in the White House. This is no. about practical policy in this region. The problem many people in this region see is that for obvious reasons, the White House policy or the Biden team policy will be really about China in this in upcoming year. So for many of the White House policy leaders, which we know as well, they really want to kind of put Russia in a box and hide it for a couple of years in a way that they don't want to work on the Russia issue 
issue, which I fully understand them as a human being, but the problem is Russia cannot be kind of solved in a way that you basically do a deal with, with somebody in Europe and Russia goes away for a couple of years for major problem making. Russia is a bully of this region, is a most important military threat to Europe and to NATO as well, uh, at least to the European part of NATO. So it's impossible to get rid of them only with one deal. Obama tried, Bush tried as well to some extent, but never happened, never worked out. So we are to some extent repeating the same mistake again. And I think it's only a matter of time till there'll be another Russian invasion or a direct annexation of Belarus as well, which will change the military balance across across uh, all of Europe, not only this region. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, with every concession you give Russia, they see this as weakness. It's not, you know, they'll never take a deal and say, oh, you know, okay, let's back away. We'll be nice. We'll play with the toys with everybody else. <laughs> yeah, they received a summit. And I mean, what happened? We got directly like a, another big cyber attack right after the summit. You know, they always want to show their presence mm-hmm. and to show that every time someone offers them concessions that they'll come back even stronger and push the lines further and further to see, you know, at what point will someone actually react and do something. So putting them in a box definitely is not going to work. It's impossible. And even with this pipeline just on the surface, I mean, it's just ridiculous because Matthias Warnock, who's running the project, who was a recruit of Putin's when they were intelligence operatives in the 80s in Dresden. And I mean, the Nord Stream 2, granted, it was what, Switzerland that the companies registered. But when you go on the page, I mean, it says host, a wholly subsidiary of Gazprom. So it's a Russian gas company. So, I mean, this is directly Russian interest. When we were talking with Yuri Felchinsky, we learned that the Kremlin's actions abroad actually replicate what Putin and the security forces were doing inside Russia in 1999. They take hold of the top leadership so that you don't need to actually invade a country to achieve your goals. What effects and damage has this kind of capturing the political elites done to the state and also to the citizens? What's important to understand is where there is political alignment between the Kremlin and European political parties, even U.S parties to, to, to some extent. So the profile is anti-US, anti-EU, anti-NATO, so anti-Western alliances, anti-immigrant, extremely supportive of traditional values. We call this strategic conservatism. So this is sort of what uh, the Kremlin has called the decadence of the West. So social values and things that you are against that. You you are clinging to to your, your traditional norms and of course, you know, full respect for one's faith. But, but all of these are weaponized. So, you know, just putting support outright financial support from the Kremlin aside, there is an alignment of interests. This alignment usually falls on the far right, but not necessarily so. It sometimes can also fall along on the far left. And because structurally over the last 20 years, particularly in Europe, the same thing is true in the U.S., the political center has been shrinking and, and, and fragmenting and collapsing. So what happens is those fringe elements on the right and the left have become 
quite emboldened because people, you know, are, are very frustrated with what is on political offer. They feel that it's not working for them. Globalization and the speed of change is frightening to them. And then all of a sudden, we just have this alignment of stars where these fringe elements that have perfect alignment, typically, with the Kremlin are now growing in popularity. So now what the Kremlin is doing is amplifying their messages. Sometimes they purchase the media outlets, so that's amplified. They're working closely with the social media elements of these fringe parties. And again, they exploit weaknesses. So what is a weakness in, in, in Western societies right now? Very deep controversy over immigration. What does Russia do? Focus on anti-immigration. And where do you see that alignment? Viktor Orban. You see the anti-Semitism, the fear of the other. You see Christian values. I mean, using that, uh, the legitimacy of your own belief and faith system, you're weaponizing that to keep you away from the West or to break up. So it's a political alignment that we have to acknowledge And then the Kremlin helps financially support it, whether it's European Parliament elections, gives it social media, amplification, exploiting every weakness in a society, controversy, racial relations. My goodness, Russia tries to amplify America's difficulty with its race relations. So I I always like to say this is not, the Kremlin isn't causing this. Our societies have these fractures and have these divisions that we must heal for ourselves. But the problem is the adversary uses that and then they see where they can go. And if they can get a Marine Le Pen in the Elysee, if they can help support that, what a win because that leader will pull France away from Europe, away from the U.S., away from NATO, and towards the Kremlin. That's the picture. That's what's of interest. So the stakes are very enormous, but it comes from the divisions in our own societies, which they exploit. So we give them the opportunity, unfortunately. And even with COVID, I mean, look at the damage, the death toll that Russia caused, because I was monitoring their disinformation beginning January 2020 where, I mean, they were running and it would pop up in Russian like fringe outlets and then kind of trickle too. And then by like mid-February, it's in far-right outlets. And I'm like, my God. And then it just kept adjusting anti-mask, anti-vaccine, anti-COVID. I mean, it just did not end. And at the process, we have over 600,000 dead in United States. Well, you can trace in part why the African-American community is so reluctant, I mean, uh, to to go get vaccinated. You can go back to the 1980s and Soviet active measures linking HIV AIDS to vaccines. I mean, this is historic, deeply rooted stuff. Now they just have an amazing array of tools on social media for immediate amplification. So absolutely, no, no, the lives that have been lost because of disinformation information. It's absolutely tragic. And until we strengthen ourselves, we can't fight this. That's what I keep saying. We can talk about Russia until we're blue in the face, but we have to really strengthen ourselves because that's the most important thing to me. We are healthy as a democratic society that we can resist how they exploit our own weaknesses. Yeah. Yeah. Jakob, you wrote about this in one of your reports with the Russian disinformation in the Czech Republic, with the narratives that they were using. Can you give us some advice on how we can counter this kind of thing? I mean, there are multiple choices from exposing who is spreading it 
and making it socially unacceptable. So for example, when we catch or see and reveal organizing disinformation campaigns, for example, anti-vaccination, so many people die because, because they believe this Russian lie, this is where we could hold Russia accountable. Basically, when you have a bad actor doing something bad to you, you need to stop them with force. Doesn't mean that you have to shoot them first, but you need to make them make them make it hurt, make them make it painful to them, so they stop the aggression. Because what we see with Russia, if you think about how the Russian state tries to work against us as democracies, they try to find the vulnerabilities and make them hurt even more. They make even it worse. even worse for us. And this is basically the hybrid warfare stuff, how, how it works, effectively on various domains, various sectors. So our main job is to heal our societies from all our domestic problems. That's our domestic job. That's our homework. But our core job, I think, should be really defending our sovereignty, meaning there's nobody from the outside. And just, just imagine the family dispute over anything. You don't want your neighbor to jump into your family fight. That's your domestic internal fight. And basically, this is how it should work across countries among states. So there is nobody from the outside who could speak into our domestic fight, meaning our domestic issues, internal issues. So there are many sanctions. There are many things we, we should do to hurt not Russia as a country, but the Russian state leadership, the Kremlin, which is effectively hundreds of individuals who should be the main targets of all of us. It already is for the US government to some, to some extent, but for us here in Europe, it is not. Many of European countries or most of European countries are unwilling to put up the sanctions to make it hurt for Russia because they still think, look, if we are nice enough, they may be, Russia will not be that hard on us. The usual appeasement policy, which never works. Actually, last seven years, since 2014, Russian invasion of Ukraine shows that appeasement does not work. But most of the European countries are still going in this direction and we are unwilling to stand up for ourselves. So to give you an example how disinformation works very practically here, that if I sit in the Czech Republic, country of 10 million in Central Europe, Russia wants to invade Ukraine and make it its puppet state. So Russia wants Ukraine to be isolated. Russia wants that other European countries do not support Ukraine. That's the Russian strategic objective. How does Russia achieve it? From bribing politicians across Europe to organizing disinformation campaigns in the Czech language, for example, which are portraying Ukraine as a, as a fascist failing state. Which means that the result is that there's approximately one third of the Czech population, so every third Czech citizen approximately, who thinks Ukraine is a failed fascist state. Why it's important is that if you are a Czech politician, if you are a Czech foreign minister or the Czech government, the question for you is, how much are we going to support Ukraine with material help, with military assistance? How are we going to support Ukraine, which is a victim of Russian aggression? And then you look over the polls and you see that, you see that one third of your electorate thinks that those guys are fascists and they are a failing state. So how can you send them weapons to defend themselves if your electorate thinks they are fascists? You cannot do it. So this is the way, this is the win for Russia. I'm using a very simplified example, but this is exactly what Russia wants. Without firing a shot on the Czech territory, I mean, in this particular case, 
they are winning because Czech Republic is not effectively supporting Ukraine as it should because Ukraine is a victim of Russian aggression. So that's how, we, how strategic disinformation works over multiple years. This does not happen overnight, but if you do this for multiple years on a big scale, you can achieve a lot. And it happens here in this region. Yeah. And in Ukraine, we definitely have seen the effect of it. The amount of disinformation targeting Ukraine, specifically Russia puts out the narrative that Ukrainians are Nazis because they know how that brings up feelings of hatred. And that's absolutely the furthest from the truth. You see even just their disinformation within Ukraine. I mean, they took over media through their oligarchs and were brainwashing Ukrainians against Ukrainians, causing a fight inside the country to split it, which is what we're seeing in the United States now. It was a good testing ground. Okay, so a lot of people don't know about this, but there was a case, a scandal in Poland, Watergate, (laughs) not Watergate, Watergate, where politicians, lobbyists, you know, were being taped in a restaurant. It ended up being traced back as a Russian operation. And these leaks were disseminated prior to election, giving rise to the pro-Russia party in Poland. And it looks like that could have been a test case for what we saw in the United States when the Russians hacked the DNC and then disseminated, you know, certain information. What other methods does the Kremlin use to give support to their candidates and the parties that they choose? Well, I think one great example was in 2017 with the French presidential election. It backfired for a variety of, of important reasons. But that, again, this is it's another example of, you know, it was doxing. It was a hack of the Macron presidential campaign's emails, again, very similar to the DNC issue. Uh, some of them were email, actual emails. Some of them were fake. They were tossed in there. And it's really the onus then is for everyone to decide, well, what's true and what's not true. And that's, again, part of Russian disinformation. You're so confused. You don't know what to believe. There are multiple answers. But you sort of throw up your hands and go, I don't know what it is. It's just they're all they're all a mess kind of thing. And so, you know, again, historically, we saw in 2015, there was Russian interference in the German election. The Christian Democratic Union Party was hacked. The Bundestag was hacked. Again, they're trying to see what opportunity is for embarrassment and to degrade democracy. Now, as far as Watergate in Poland, you know, I, I think there really isn't a pro Russian political party. In fact, I think that's actually a weakness of of, of Polish political elite. They think they are fireproof because there's such a, a broad spectrum of anti-Russian sentiment for understandable historic reasons. The Watergate thing was just to embarrass the former government and to make people just go, yeah, I want these guys out because why? They were very pro-European. They were always pro-NATO, pro-US, and that continues even with a new government. I think the weakness in Poland, and I'm really glad you raised this, is actually what I was mentioning earlier about strategic conservatism. This is where the decadence of the West and this current Polish government's view about LGBTQI rights and, you know, obviously very controversial, you know, same-sex marriage, abortion. These are very controversial issues. I don't mean to, to, to weigh in on them. 
but what the, there's huge Russian amplification of that division. So Poland, even though they, they're very anti-Russian, they support thousands of U.S. troops, they're very pro-NATO, they're against Nord Stream 2, their weakness is that. And Russia is able to insert itself in that strategic conservatism and dividing the Polish people and the decadence of the West and that social agenda. So no one is immune from this. They find the division in the society. They amplify both sides to make sure they come to conflict with each other. And exactly as Jakob said, and then they turn around and go, these guys are so screwed up. Ukraine, why do you want to join NATO and the European Union? Moldova, what are you thinking? You must be with us. So they're trying to reduce us, demonstrate that the West is just a screwed up place that no Russian would ever want to join. Yet, interestingly, there was a survey done by the Levada Center that 58%, I believe, of 18 to 24-year-olds in Russia, where do they want to be? They want to be in the West. They want to leave Russia because that's where the opportunity is. So you can understand why it's an absolute priority for the Russian government to use all its tools of influence to make the West look as horrible and ugly. Sometimes we give them opportunity. Again, that's, you know, we accept our responsibility for our own messes and our policies, but they're doing this for purpose. It has both strategic effect externally, but it's also for internal effect because they do fear, you know, you, you have more Russian bloggers, Belarusian bloggers in the Baltic states, in Central Europe. That pool and that brain drain into the West will help channel pro-Western messages back into Russia. So it's a very interesting combination. Yeah, they're definitely receiving a much more than during the Soviet days. I mean, the thought of painting the West as, you know, an enemy has has existed forever inside of Russia. But now it's definitely you see Russians, you know, especially like Heather said, younger ones who are gravitating more towards the West and don't see U.S. as a threat. I mean, any given week you like read a Russian media outlet and, you know, they're like have some imaginary invasion or attack and like, you know, happening. Meanwhile, nothing is happening. And people are beginning to see through with that. There is no threat. You know, there's no military surrounding Russia. Like, no, Olga, I mean, not even the oligarchs want to stay in Russia. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. I mean, not that. Look, I, I, I don't want to disparage. That's not the, the, the thing. But there are lots of reasons to go. OK, to the West. I mean, the, the oligarchs themselves want to get out. Well, under that leadership, I mean, <laughs> well, their money is protected in the West. It's not protected yeah. in Russia, exactly. which is why we are offering our rule of law to protect their ill-gotten gains, which should be back in Russia, helping the Russian people improve their standard of living, their health care, their, you know, they're robbing their own people. Yes. That's This is the message that we need to reinforce. Yeah. Look, it's the dignity of the individual. It is for the Russian people to choose their form of governments, their economy, their lifestyle. But we believe everyone should be treated with some dignity. And corruption is a violation of one's human dignity. The fact that you, you know, you can't earn a livelihood, you can't speak freely, you can't choose your political leadership, that is an affront to dignity. Dignity is affronted in, in, the, in the West as well. But, you know, that's the message we need to, to deliver, that we support them in their aspirations. And we hope that their government will listen to 
their aspirations, not try to repress them and and beat them as they try to protest against decisions their government has made. Yeah, there's, in fact, you're talking about a bright spot as well. It gives us something to hope for all nations, right? The idea of countering corruption. And- Absolutely. Yeah, no, definitely. We saw Russia invade in Georgia and Moldova and Ukraine. Why does Russia choose and feel comfortable invading certain countries while they use other methods for state capture in other countries? Well, in part, uh, it's, again, to keep them out of, of NATO, keep them out of the West. So, of course, uh, for Moldova and Transnistria, Russian forces have been asked to depart. They refused. They, uh, they were there after the breakup of the Soviet Union. Of course, Georgia in 2008, nearly 20 percent of their territory is occupied by Russian forces and separatists, and then Ukraine, 7 percent of their territory, Crimea and, and, and Donbass. It is a, a method of control. It is to make sure that they can't join NATO because they don't control their entire territory. It is also what I call thermostat policy. So when it suits the Kremlin, they can turn the heat up on that thermostat and put enormous amount of pressure on those governments if they are becoming too close to the the West. If the Kremlin needs and wants to demonstrate that it can work with the West, it will dial down the temperature and act like they want to now cooperate and be in dialogue. But the dialogue will never end because those forces will never leave because that is how they keep their sphere of influence uh, as part of that broader effort. So the West needed to appreciate what this tactic was from the very beginning. And in some ways, I think continue to send strong messages that no, despite territorial occupation, that does not prevent these countries from joining the EU and NATO. These countries must continue to reform themselves and not allow that occupation to distract it from their core task. Uh, Getting back to sort of what Jakob was saying, the mission of the West is to support the people and their aspirations and the governments as they're elected, if they demonstrate those aspirations, to give them those tools. But it is their fight. It is not our fight. And too often, U.S. and European leaders, select ones, have taken it that it's their fight. It is not. And in fact, if we look at Central Europe, Hungary is a perfect example. That fight never ends. The backsliding is there. The U.S., the fight never ends uh, to to be a a more perfect union. So we really have to think long-term, much more focus on civil society, non-governmental organizations, giving the local folks the tools to fight this corruption, to fight this influence, and hopefully over the long-term, and this is a long-term investment, we will have a day when these countries can successfully join the West, and by the way, that Russia can be a modern society that supports the interests and the aspirations of its people and join and follow the international norms and rules of the system. Right now, Russia is trying to violate all those norms to protect itself. Unfortunately, not only is it not protecting itself, it's weakening itself and it's weakening its neighborhood. So, you know, the the task here is absolutely enormous. Huge, huge. We actually touched, okay, on this uh, earlier, Jakob, Uh, Before, during, after an invasion, the Kremlin floods the area, the targeted area that they have with disinformation, with the narratives. And in this narrative, there's this excuse that they want to protect 
Russian minorities and their speakers in those territories for some sort of non-existent threat. Okay, this is the modus operandi or the causus belli. So can you tell us, first of all, how they carry this kind of operation out? And do you think that this kind of thing is actually effective or is it effective? Using information warfare as a usual strategic tool of the armed forces is something what even NATO militaries are trained to do on a defensive environment. But we see Russia almost perfecting it, at least in Eastern Europe. And the things, as you said, uh, that they are going ahead with the narrative of defending or protecting somebody there. There is a classical Czechoslovak joke that uh, after the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia in 19. 19- 1968, do you know why they stayed for next 21 years? Because they were searching for the for the guy who invited them. I mean, it's it's but it's something what Russia still uses still today in many yeah, multiple yeah. countries, yeah. creating basically fake gov- governments or fake local politicians who are inviting them. Let's say that's what we have seen in Donbas, in Crimea, in multiple uh, other countries and regions. So how it works is that quite often, if this disinformation, but in military terms, is information operation, if this is part of a military direct action, meaning like an invasion, it is usually planned quite well in advance, like these activities on Crimea in uh, 2013-2014 as well. So this is only a part of the physical operation of the military movement. So they start spreading various narratives which sometimes justify their own activity, meaning we are coming over to save you, protect you from Ukraine fascists, so-called fascists, let's say, in Crimea or Donbass, or international justification. So there are manipulated cases, events in the, in the local towns which, which create the pretext for the invasion. This is, for example, how World War II started. So this is a usual tool militaries use across the world, or at least authoritarian countries do it in in this fashion, and uh, Russia perfects it. So it's it's well planned. It's organized by not only the military itself, but quite often in coordination with the intelligence community of the particular country, which is not only the core officers, people who work for the agencies themselves who do it, but what they do before, they create their own networks of assets and proxies, meaning people who are locals who work for them, who work for them in gathering reconnaissance and intelligence, like local information you can use during the invasion, but also who create the the ways how you could communicate once the invasion starts. This is what we have seen in Eastern Ukraine. This is what we see, see in other regions as well. So it's quite a well-planned military operation, if this is basically a supportive tool for a direct action like the Russian military invasion of Ukraine. So basically, this is how they organize it. NATO knows it pretty well. I myself are a military reservist with my, in my country. We know the doctrines. It is, it is pretty well studied and understood how they do it. We could understand easily and quickly once this starts to happening. So it doesn't need to be only movement of, of troops, which you could see from satellite pictures, for example. But when you see changes in information environment, this is how you start to operate. So for example, in Lithuania, one of the Baltic countries of a, as a NATO member, Uh, on the border of Russia, they basically what they do at their defense ministry, they have an operational team which looks in real time over information incidents, meaning are the Russians cooking up something in this town or in Lithuania? 
If they do, could it be connected to a direct military action or is it a provocation? So it's basically a very much live action for the military, which sometimes could look like a local bizarre incident of, of somebody who is not connected to politics at all, but they really assess all the incidents because for countries like Lithuania, or Latvia or Estonia, the Baltic countries, for them it's a matter of, of physical survival if this is a start of invasion. So they need to know it in real time. In the spring, we saw Russian military building up on the borders of Ukraine. Then the headlines came that after some pressure that they are pulling back. Meanwhile, all the military equipment stayed. Troops, a few thousand pulled back, but they are still almost double of what there was during invasion. Then over the past few weeks in Russian state media, you see the narrative of Russians and Ukrainians being one people ramping up. And then you saw Putin with his essay, which for the first time he actually had issued in Ukrainian as well as English and Russian. Do you see any indications there is prospects of a military invasion coming? Are U.S. and NATO monitoring it? And what can be done in the case that Russia invades Ukraine or anybody at this point in the region? So the Russian military buildup, for me, is an example of that thermostat policy that I was mentioning to you. So the Russians told us that they were responding to a NATO exercise called Defender 21. that had been a bit postponed because of the pandemic. And it, it Again, defend. It was to defend NATO. But quite frankly, this was more about what was happening within Ukraine at the time. President Zelensky was finally taking some strong action against uh, oligarchs uh, and some of the Russian influence that worked in Ukraine. So this was Russia, again, turning that pressure up. We didn't know what that military mobilization was about. It was a prelude to an invasion. It had UCOM go on high alert, calls back and forth. What is going on? That's exactly what it was designed to do. Get high level attention. Meet my demands. You don't know what I'm going to do and apply pressure on Kyiv. Now, the problem is after they after they sort of gained that, Russian Defense Minister Shoigu said, OK, we're, 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 we're de-escalating. We're, we're going to move forces away. But they left all their equipment there. So we now have pretty much all the pre-positioned equipment the Russian forces would need should they decide to, again, intervene in Ukraine. On top of that, we have a large annual Russian military exercise. The shift in Russian-Belarusian relations will have a much more meaningful and perhaps permanent Russian military presence in addition to what already exists within Belarus today. That now adds even more pressure mm-hmm. on Ukraine and NATO's eastern flank. So again, what we need Russia to do is come back into treaty compliance with the conventional forces in Europe so we have understanding of why they're moving forces so we don't get overly concerned when we see a normal exercise. We need to return back to greater transparency. Uh, The U.S. left the Open Skies Treaty. That was a transparency tool that was unfortunate because we really need to have that visibility. And we need to be in dialogue with the Russian military. And we have hotlines and things like that. And they worked at that time. But we don't want accident. We don't want miscalculation. And the problem is both militaries, Russia and NATO, are exercising more. And so that always increases miscalculation. That's why we have to communicate more, the more we're more we're exercising. So this is a particularly dangerous moment. We have to watch very closely. But again, they now have greater optionality. Russia has greater optionality in pressuring Ukraine. And that is in part 
what this is about. Again, we are at a point where basically Russia acts as a non-responsible international actor, to put it mildly. And our problem is that we are not putting damage on Russia for doing it. So Russia can do whatever it wants as a bully without fearing any real-life consequences. So after Russia did this uh, escapade in around Ukraine, there were no new sanctions, there were no, no new action against the Russian behavior. They got a meeting so, or something yeah, they got. They effectively, <laughs> they were like a, like a bully or a spoiled child who said, well, I need to talk to you, and then they got a meeting. So I mean, it's fine the meeting happened, but there needs to be punishment for bad behavior, otherwise the bad behavior continues. And that's our, that's our continued problem, because many of our leaders uh, are not willing to put it up. And that's the reason why we see more and more of the bad and aggressive behavior. I think that's our bottom line of the problem. Thank you, Jakob. Thank you. Thank you all so much. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com, and find our links to our socials in the show notes. This is Season 1, Kremlin File, hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monika Mara. This is a Bunker Crew Media production with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben, Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarna. Sound engineering by Mike Greenberg. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts. So we should call it the Kremlin shit show. show. No, the Kremlin, what did we call the Kremlin pimps? (laughs)